Well, it's still a good morning, and it's good to be together. Why are salesmen successful? Why do we buy things in life? Why do we do these things? It's the reality that there is a real need, or at the very least, an exposed, perceived need in our life for something. The church in Galatia, the Judaizers, those that had come in among them, those that had seeped in among the congregation, they had discovered a very real need, and they successfully diagnosed it. So even though this was a congregation of people that believe the gospel, the news of Christ's sinless life, his make-right death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, that they had placed their faith and trust in him, as a congregation that had been saved and come out of a pagan background, many in the church had subscribed to a licentious type of lifestyle. Licentiousness, think the word license, a license to live how you want. So many in the church had lived in a licentious way, believing as though there's this thing called cheap grace. They're, they're right with God, so why does it matter how they actually live? When the Judaizers came in among them, they exposed this very real problem in the congregation. But they offered them a solution that was not sufficient solution that could not solve the problem that they had. They offered them the solution of abandoning the gospel and embracing the law. They said, we've been following the law for over 1,500 years. The law will, will solve your sin problems that you have because the church in Galatia looked very much like the pagan culture, with the exception that it had a Christian t-shirt on. It looked very similar. So they exposed a real problem, and many in the church were tempted to follow them and go the opposite way. Because what the Judaizers promoted for them was that there's two solutions. They have a real problem, and there's two solutions to you. Either A, you live how you're living in a licentious, live-it-up lifestyle and mock God, or B, you take the only other option, which is life by the law, life by the law of Moses. What Paul does for us in our text, he's done it repeatedly in the letter, but here it becomes abundantly clear as the light of day that there is a third option. See, the salesmen had negated one factor. They had missed one key portion of what it is to follow after Christ. As we live a life not bound by the law and not free to go in abundance of sin, as a matter of fact, Paul says, may that never be. The option in how we're to live our life is by a life by walking by the Spirit of God. See, if you're a Christian, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, if you turn from sin and place your faith and trust in Christ, that itself is a work of the Spirit of God, that you've been brought from death to life. That's the gift we have. We've been brought from death to life. And the life that we live now as believers, as ones who have been born again, is a life in dependency upon the Holy Spirit of God who testifies in how we're to live. Scholars call this the third way, the highway above the rest of the options. Life by the Spirit. In our text this morning, as we finish up chapter 5 of Galatians, the question becomes, what does it look like to live a life according to the Spirit? So we've had a lot of imagery. If you're a visual learner, Galatians is a book for you. Just in this chapter, he's mentioned being freed from prison in Galatians chapter 4 as well. You've been set free to do what? To stand firm. Get that imagery in your mind of standing firm, like somebody standing firm in this huge windstorm coming along. You've been set free to stand firm and to do what? To run with endurance after Jesus. Now we have this fourth imagery of walking out your life. Walking and living, they're used synonymously. To walk after the Spirit of God, to walk with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. 
according to the Word of God. So how do we do that as disciples? How do we actually live a life walking by the Spirit? That's what Paul's going to paint for us this morning that we do not want to miss if we hope to understand this because there's a wealth of abuses of what that actually is for our life. Now let's begin first and foremost as we look at Galatians 5, 16 through 25 this morning, finishing this fifth chapter. Two pillars for what it means as disciples to live under the authority of the Spirit. First and foremost, we notice that when disciples live under the authority of the Spirit, they will begin to accidentally keep the summation of the law, to love Yahweh, to love God and neighbor. When disciples live under the authority of the Spirit, we will begin to accidentally keep the law, which is summarized in loving Yahweh, loving God, and loving neighbor. But Paul first gives two clarifications then for what the law is not required for. This is what the law is not required for. He's going to give two points from verse 16 through 21 as I'm summarizing them. In 16 and 18, the law is not required for a life of righteousness. The law is not required for a life of righteousness. Remember, the Judaizers, those that were trying to tempt them to abandon the gospel and pursue a life by the law of Moses, successfully diagnosed the problem, but they offered an inadequate solution. The law is not required for a life of righteousness. Look, 16 through 18, the ESV, if you don't have a Bible, follow along with us. We'll be flipping around a little bit this morning as well, so you'll be especially rewarded if you're following along uh, in, the, in the Bible, in the pew back in front of you. Verse 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 25 other times Paul is going to give this language of walking by the Spirit. 25 times to walk by the Spirit in his letters. 25 different times. John's going to do so three times in his little letters. Again and again and again, Paul wants to make it abundantly clear for the churches, for the Christians, if you're to follow after Jesus Christ as his disciple, you must do so in step with the Holy Spirit of God. He who indwells you so naturally, we begin to ask, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to walk after the Spirit? I want to give you two texts to look at, and they're very close to this, so you shouldn't have to flip very far. But I believe that Paul uses these synonymously, this term of being filled with the Spirit or walking with the Spirit. He uses that term synonymously with the Word of Christ, the Word of God dwelling in us. So as we hear the Word of God and we apply the Word of God to our lives, that is what's being used synonymously in Paul's writings in the same way as to be filled with the Spirit. So the two are married together. God takes the Word of God and He marries it to the Holy Spirit of God and how we're living our life. The Holy Spirit, then, we might say, works through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God are doing the same thing. The Spirit of God illuminates us to understand and to apply the Scriptures to our lives. And the Spirit of God inspired Scripture. God breathes Scripture. The Spirit of God likewise illuminates our minds and our hearts to apply the Scripture to our own unique circumstances and our different cultures all around the world. And we're going to see that in a few moments. But look over to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to show you why this is. Ephesians 5, we'll give you time to flip to both of these references in a moment. But he uses both of these terms. Be filled with the Spirit and the Word of Christ dwelling in us. And he says that they produce the same result. That's why I argue they're synonymous. 
So again, this, this term, to be filled with the Spirit, can be ambiguous. It, it can be, for me, growing up, I was like, what does that exactly mean? How do I, what does that mean? Paul defines it for us. He says it's to, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, to know the Word of God, to hunger for the Word of God, and to apply the Word of God to your daily lives for the glory of God, to know Christ better and better and better. So the first one I want to give us, let's look at Ephesians 5. And we'll actually begin back in verse 15. Ephesians 5, 15. We'll write it through verse 19. Here we go, Ephesians 5. Remember, go eat popcorn. Go eat popcorn. Do you hear that example as a kid? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. There you go. Go eat popcorn. It'd be great for lunch. Ephesians 5, 15 through 19. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand that what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but do what? For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's the result of being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spirit songs, or spiritual songs, I think that's Holy Spirit songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. All right, so keep a footmark on that, and then jump over, a finger on that, then go over to Colossians 3, Galatians Ephesians, go eat popcorn. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. Look at the same result that comes from this. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. So earlier we had to be filled with the Spirit and it produced this understanding of addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, Colossians 3, 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, spirit songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word meets the spirit. The, the, the first Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. If you and I as believers are to, to walk a life after Christ, it's going to involve the Word of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God go together. The Spirit of God who inspired the Word of God works in our life as believers to understand and to accept and therein to apply the Word of God to our daily lives. That's what it is to walk in the Spirit of God. It is to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. So as a church family, how do we best encourage each other to walk in the Spirit? We do so by loving each other and helping each other understand the Scriptures and apply the Scriptures to our unique circumstances. Whether they're circumstances of grieving, circumstances of celebration, of mourning, of apathy, of temptation, of trial, every one of them the way we best love each other is to help the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, praying for each other, bearing burdens of one another, as we'll see next week, by looking to the Word of Christ and allowing that to dwell in our lives together, one another, more and more. And that's exactly what the call that Paul gives to the church is to do. That's what to fix our mind on. We're to fix our minds on the things of Christ above, seated at the right hand of the Father. The Scriptures will never call us to empty our minds. Scripture never tells you to empty your mind. 
This Eastern religion idea of meditation and clearing your mind, that's foolishness according to the scriptures. The scriptures even warn us of that and call us instead to fix our minds upon Christ, to dwell upon the word of God. That's what we're to fix our minds on, is the word of God, the light into our path. The scriptures call us to set our minds on Christ, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and in so doing, we honor the Lord. Paul presents two very different pictures, a life by the flesh that all of us are capable of in this room and outside this room, and a life by the Spirit that only those who know Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, He, the third person of the Trinity, indwelling us are capable of. He's going to present these two pictures, a life by the flesh or a life by the Spirit. And his point is, you can't do both at the same time. You can't feast and fast at the same time. It's not possible. To live life by the Spirit is to live a life treasuring up the Word of Christ, to know Him in abundance, to fix our mind on Christ. To walk by the Spirit is to celebrate and to embrace the Scriptures for our life. Don't confuse those other areas of the law or licentiousness. It's life by the Spirit. So the law is not required for a life of righteousness. And secondly, 19 through 21, the law is not even required for identifying sinfulness. Yes, the law does identify sinfulness. The commandments identify for us what is wrong. They give us an accurate diagnosis. Every one of us has a problem of sinfulness. And sin is lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God for us. The diagnosis is correct. We have a sin problem. And we have a holy and perfect judge. We are in trouble, every one of us. The diagnosis is accurate, but the cure is by the Spirit, not by the law. So the law in this way is not required for even identifying sinfulness. He identifies it for us in verse 19 through 21. So we're going to read this list, and then we'll come back through at the end, and then we'll walk through them one by one. And as we do so, I want you to notice the very last list. He's going to give us 16 words. This is one of the many vice lists in the scriptures. He gives us 16 different descriptions. The 16th is his way of saying, etc. And things like these, he says. And he does that because he knows in our heart as fallen individuals, and individuals even in Christ that still wrestle against the flesh, he knows if he didn't put that on there, what would we do? Well, he didn't say that was wrong. That list is wrong, but my sin problem isn't one of those, so it must be okay. We're good at doing that, aren't we? Little kids are good at doing that. Hey, you didn't say I couldn't do it this way. And they knew what they were doing, but they were working their way back to justify what they really wanted to set their hearts on. So he gives a list of 16. We're going to walk through these, these together. Let's read together, though, 19 through 21, as he describes the plural, the works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy and drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's providing for us two character sketches. Imagine you get a a friend request on Facebook. A friend request is given to you. And they're both brutally honest, or they're way honest. The first one presents a picture of a person, and the second one presents a picture of another person. And here's the beautiful story of what Christianity is. The beautiful story of Scripture is not, hey, because we are good people, we're in the second category. The picture of Christianity is, says the first category of the flesh is all of our resumes in different ways. We are all 
of the flesh and broken and do things like this. And as Christians, now we're saved from that and made into new people to begin looking like people of the Spirit, to have the singular fruit of the Spirit blossoming in our lives. And there is a church family as a congregation to begin blossoming more and more together. So let's walk through this list that describes the first character of the works of the flesh. Number one, sexual immorality. It's that word porneia. We've talked about it actually before. But the idea is porneia is any sexual activity outside of the commitment of biblical marriage. One man, one woman, and a death do you part covenant relationship given by God. That's marriage. Sexual activity outside of that is sin. And it's called porneia. And it puts it in a broad term. In the first century world, porneia was not really seen as a bad thing unless it was extreme. So a man or woman, especially a man, could have relations outside of a marriage, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal as long as it wasn't to an extreme. Paul comes along in the scriptures say very clearly, no, 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 all of that is sin. It's wrong. It's not of those that will inherit the kingdom of light. I know that sounds nothing like our culture today, right? Our culture, let's be honest, our, our culture worships at the altar of sexual liberty. The only sin really sexually in our culture, one of the very few sins, is to call sex outside of the context of biblical marriage sin. That's sin in our culture. The scriptures present a very clear picture of those that are of the Spirit will look contrastingly and increasingly different from the world because they have a different authority. They walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Number two, impurity. Impurity is a unique word. Medically, it was given in different writings to describe like pus coming from a wound. A gross word, right? Not a word you want to think of when you eat lunch in a few moments. Good resist, okay? So uh, medically, it's that way. Morally, it's given as a word that says that's not pure, right? It seems obvious, but you know it when you see it. You know what I mean? Like if you saw either one of those two things, medically or morally, you would know that's not good. I'm not eating that, right? That's not a good thing. That's what impurity is. Impurity, thirdly, sensuality. The idea is it's a lack of care of what God thinks and what people think. Sensuality is the Proverbs picture in Proverbs 4 through 7 or so of the adulterous man or adulterous woman. The idea is there's an impulse, so go for it. Seize the day. Carpe diem, go for it. You want it, take it. It feels good, go for it. That's sensuality. That's marks of the flesh, not of the spirit. Number four, idolatry. This is the, the worship of a false god represented by an image. 1 Corinthians 10, we won't take the time to read it for time's sake, but you can write it down and see how the church reconciled having people that came out of a pagan background and therefore couldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And you had people coming not from a pagan background and they just wanted to eat a good barbecue for lunch. And so they're eating the meat and you all can't eat the meat because it's against your conscience. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul addresses how that should be handled in the context of the church. Incredible chapter. I encourage you to read it. Sorcery, number five. That's Exodus chapter 7. You can write down. It's a description of Pharaoh's sorcerers. The same idea. The idea is consulting anything besides Yahweh, besides the triune God for wisdom or instruction of your life. It's, it's a giving in. It's a, I think astrology would be in this category. The idea of pursuing or searching the stars or, or spiritual forces outside of Christ and his word for authority of how to live life. This would be horoscopes, tarot cards, things like that that seem maybe harmless. They're a massive industry. It's over a $2 billion industry in America right now. Over $2 billion every year. It is a false source of authority. 
It's of the flesh, not of the spirit. Enmity, number six. The New King James, the NIV, others translate this as hatred. That's certainly legitimate. And here's, I want to write down these references. I won't give you time there, but Romans 8, 7 and Ephesians 2, 14. Romans 8, 7 and Ephesians 2, 14. Enmity or hatred, this describes every one of us. In those two texts, enmity is how it is described for you and I before we came to know Jesus Christ as King. Before we came to worship Jesus Christ, before God, you and I were at hatred, were at enmity before God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, it is hostile, it is at hatred, it is at enmity to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. In Ephesians 2, 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Sorcery, enmity, and strife. Strife. The idea is a contentious person. And in 1 Timothy 6, this is the warning that Paul gives to the elders into the church. Be, be careful of, of contentious people. Be careful, beware of contentious people. Number eight, jealousy. Jealousy is straightforward, isn't it? I think jealousy is the gateway sin. Jealousy is the gateway sin, isn't it? We use jealousy to justify all kinds of behavior, don't we? For Cain and Abel, it becomes the jealousy marker by which Cain can rationalize murdering his brother Abel. For Rachel and Leah, who are placing their value and worth based upon having children, jealousy becomes the fuel that causes them to take their hope off of God. Jealousy is a fuel that ultimately fuels a host of other sins. Number nine, fits of anger. In Luke 4, you can write down that reference in Luke 4. This is the description of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to Nazareth and he's invited into the synagogue and he teaches and he preaches. And he condemns the people. He points out to their hearts. He knows their hearts. And they don't really want him. They want to use Jesus. And Jesus calls them out for it. And it says that they take him up to a cliff and they try to throw him off and murder him. It's fits of rage, fits of anger. Number 10, rivalries or selfish ambition. It's a selfish ambition that says, me above you. Me first. Me first. That's what I want. Selfish ambition. Jesus comes along and what's he do? He says, the greatest among you will be the least. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, the great among you will be last. He flips everything of the flesh upside down, completely flips it. Number, 10, uh, number 11, dissensions. So Paul warns in Romans 16, 17, beware of those who are relationship arsonists. Those whose goal is just like sparks. Let me plant and see what kind of division I can cause. This is social media in our age, right? It's a great tool for relationship arsonists to create dissension. Number 12 is divisions or, or factions. This would be groups that exist. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns the church, be weary of factions. Factions don't care about truth. They care about their group. So whereas rivalries say it's me, and I don't care, couldn't care less what happens to you as long as I'm okay, Rivalries say, I don't care what happens to you or you all as long as we are okay. It's a completely tribal type mentality. And it justifies a multitude of sinful things. A racism amongst us, a host of things we could say. That would fit into this understanding of factions, foolishness, sinfulness. He's, Paul says, beware of those that are forming factions among you. Number 13 is envy. Envy is the twin sibling of jealousy. It's what Pilate says about Barabbas. When the crowd is gathered, do you remember? 
The crowd is gathered and they're cheering, and Jesus can find no fault with, or, or, or Pilate can find no fault with Jesus. He washes his hands clean. What's the crowd chanting? Barabbas the murderer. They want Barabbas the murderer. Why? Because he, Pilate says to the leaders, you are envious of Jesus. I find no fault with him. Envy. 14 and 15, drunkenness and orgies. Drunkenness, the idea of giving over your mind to another substance to rule you. And then orgies, giving over your body. Uh, many writers point out that this is, a, this is truly an aspect of pagan worship also in the first century world, but the two in themselves are obviously wrong. And in 16, he says things like these. He puts it all in together into a big package and says, and anything outside of this list, it also counts, right? You know it, right? So he's saying, you know what else would go here if I had time. Don't do that. That's life by the flesh. And life by the Spirit's on the opposite. Jesus, however, also gives lists like this. One list that he gives is in Mark 7, 20 through 23. And listen to what he says about the source of this list. And he said, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So what comes out of a person? What comes out of the heart? Listen to this, verse 21 of Mark 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, porneia, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Our problem is a heart problem. What was the solution that Paul just talked about the Judaizers were doing? Remember what the physical act that, the circ- that, that they were doing? Circumcision and outward cutting. What's Paul pointing out here in this list? You have an inward cutting problem, not an outward cutting problem. Circumcision or uncircumcision, cutting of the flesh means nothing for you before a righteous God. To be justified, but secondly, it means nothing before God and walking after him in your life. Those of us, if you know Christ, and most of us do know Jesus Christ as your king, to walk after the Lord in our life is a hard issue. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God. This is the participation part. I didn't tell you that, so it just became weird with me pointing to my ear. <laughs> I planted, Apollo watered, and who gave the growth? God. So as Christians, we plant, we water, we practice the disciplines, we gather together with the church family, we practice the one another's, we pray, we read the scriptures, we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ throughout our lives. But who gives the growth as believers even? God. Walking by the Spirit of God. Even our growth is rooted in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Let's lead secondly, the second pillar of what it means to live under the authority of the Spirit. When disciples live under the authority of the Spirit, they and their local congregations will increasingly resemble the body of Christ. They and their local congregations will increasingly resemble the body of Christ. And here's two reasons for this. The first is in verses 22 and 23. Devotion to Christ by the Spirit, it will produce a universal fruit. Now, let me unpack what I mean by universal fruit. It's singular, but the universal fruit means this. Each of these lists, kindness in 2019 here in Nacogdoches County might look a little different than a culture maybe a thousand years from now in Uganda. 
But each culture will recognize that is how kindness is demonstrated here. It's the same fruit, but it looks a little differently in the culture. Does that make sense? That's why I say universal fruit, just like a thousand years from ago, to demonstrate gentleness looked a little differently, but it was still gentleness. It's this universal fruit that blossoms in the life of Christians and the lives of churches in a world marked by the flesh. Here's a list, 22 through 23. I'm going to try and read it. You know if you learn the ABC song? Have you ever tried to say the ABCs without the beat of that song? It's like impossible. The fruit of the Spirit, if you're like me, you memorize this as a young kid. And try and say it without the rhythm and it's hard. It doesn't mean anything to, at all. I just thought I'd share that with you. Okay. <laughs> 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, I thought I'd wait longer on patience. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The profile of the person marked by the fruit of the Spirit, the church marked by the fruit of the Spirit, rather than the world marked by the works of the flesh. The picture of the world, those marked by the flesh, is like a dandelion. It sprouts up all over the place. You don't expect it. You don't want them. They catch your attention, and they're almost impossible to stop. And they're quick. Life by the Spirit is like a firm oak tree. It provides shade for others, a flourishing habitat, and it's slow It's intentional. It's prodding. That's what walking by the Spirit is. The picture that's painted for our list is that we're free in Christ to walk after the Spirit. But please don't misunderstand this text as I misunderstood this for so many years of my life. Here's what I did on this text. I would take the fruit of the Spirit and make those the goal of the Christian life. I took what Paul did, the fruit of the Spirit, it comes out from it. I took the fruit and I made that the goal, target. So I made the mistake, even as a young pastor and giving counseling to people. It sounds like you need to demonstrate gentleness here, and I made gentleness the goal, or I made patience the goal, or kindness the goal. The goal of the Christian life is not to live gentle lives, to live kind lives, to live patient lives, to live faithful lives. It's not to live peaceful lives. This is not the goal. The goal of the Christian life is to walk by the Spirit after Jesus Christ. When we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, what comes out? The fruit of the Spirit. My counsel I gave on so many occasions was foolishness. I put a target on it that was the fruit. It'd be like talking to an oak tree and listen, you need to produce beautiful little azalea blossoms. I could persuade him to do that all day, but it's not capable. And anything he does produce is going to be a counterfeit. It's going to be in his own might. And that's what we do when we make these the goal. The goal of the Christian life is not to manufacture fruit. The goal of the Christian life as disciples is to fix our mind on Jesus Christ. 
to live and to understand and to apply his word and to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and together as a church family and to make and be disciples for the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And as we do so, the fruit will come personally and corporately. But I flipped it upside down on its head and I abused it. And maybe you have too. And listen, the application isn't to go home and to take the Hobby Lobby signs that say love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and to throw them away. Some of you are looking at each other, and that means I know it's in your home, okay? (laughs) No, that's not the goal. Leave it up, but let that word be a reminder of I need to look to Jesus Christ. I need to look to Jesus Christ and His Scripture. And I need to fix my eyes on Christ above in this trial. And by God's grace, He'll give me that. Because if you don't do it, here's what you'll do. You'll say, God, help me to be patient. And you'll put all your effort on being patient. And you know what will happen? You'll be patient in a situation. And then when you're patient, do you know what you'll do? Oh, I'm so patient now. I did it. And you're filled with pride. Because you did it in your own might. You see the difference? Rather than for the glory of God fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ and walking by He, the Holy Spirit, who indwells you to understand and embrace the Scriptures and apply it in life's difficult or drudgery-type situations. That's the beauty of Scripture. Devotion to Christ by the Spirit, it will produce a universal fruit. And to Him we give glory. To Him we abide. Christ said, abide in Him and we will bear much fruit. Apart from Him we can do nothing. And the same applies to the fruit of the Spirit. Abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. When I moved here, I shared a similar story before, but we had Chicken Millie. If you don't know Chicken Millie, you need to get to know Chicken Millie. And Chicken Millie are an incredible couple, seasoned in life and wise. I'm not just saying that. They really are. But he came over and looked at all of our plants. We have tons of plants throughout our yard. And not only did he tell us what to do with them, but he helped us to figure out what they were. We didn't know what anything was. We still, honestly, I didn't write it down, and I still couldn't tell you what anything is. But he told me, and I knew it one time in my life. But he walked around, and he told us, and he said, hey, this is this kind of thing, and this is this kind of thing. And so you can expect this to blossom in March. And you can expect this to do this. He didn't sit there and watch for a year until it produced fruit. Because it was what it was, he knew what it would do in time. The same is said for the Christian, to be those who fix our eyes on Christ, to be those who walk by the Spirit, we will, by God's grace, produce fruit over the time that is in line with keeping with the Word of God. And that's the beautiful gift that we have together. That's how we counsel one another. That's how we truly love one another, is to help each other remember that for the rest of our life, and at least finally, into verses 24 through 26. The disciples are possessions of Christ. You and I are possessions of Christ that have no right. You have no right to a licentious lifestyle. I have no right to a licentious lifestyle. Here's why. Verse 24 through 26. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You and I are possessions of Christ. We are owned 
We are bought with a price. We are not our own. The Christian life is not about consent because we are possessions of Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing. When I say those words, even saying them up here, I'm like, am I saying this really publicly right now? Is this a dream? I can feel myself saying those words because the baggage that may or may not come with them and the abuses of, of our culture and, and, and years gone by and be almost shocked at saying them because it may give us a ooh, an initial ooh. But that is the greatest news of all time. You and I truly, this is the descriptor, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, you are possessions of Christ's. You are not your own. I'm not my own, and this is good news for us. We don't have to apply. We are adopted, and we are made possessions of Jesus Christ to pour our lives out for the glory of God. He says to them, you have, Jesus Christ, has, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let's walk through the applications. That means my will, my way, my pride, my sin, my plans, my goals, my pleasures, everything has been crucified. It's dead. And I've now been united to Christ. See the application. We've talked all through this letter about the fact you and I are truly forgiven. You are literally forgiven for all the sin you've done if you trusted in Christ. You're His. You've been forgiven and adopted. His right standing is accredited to your account and my account. But look at this. You and I have union with Christ. Union with Christ. It wasn't just an exchange that took place. You and I are united to Christ. As Christ was crucified, so too were our identities. So too were our profiles. We now have union with Christ to live for Him by the Spirit of God through our lives. There is no greater news than this. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul said in the singular his testimony. And now in this text, he mirrors it. Matter of fact, look over there. Galatians 2, 19 through 20, if you would. Galatians 2, 19 through 20. So the answer isn't licentiousness, it's not the law, it's life by the Spirit of God who helps us to understand and apply the Word of God to our lives. So compare these. He gives the testimony in Galatians 2, 19 through 20, and now he applies it to the church. Now he applies it to the church family, the local bodies. He says, but... For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ, so that I might be made alive to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He shares his testimony personally, and then he says, by the way, your story is the same if you're of Christ. Your possessions of Christ. We're possessions of Christ. Your story is my story. My story is your story. Have you ever met somebody in a distant place and found out, hey, we have this in common. This week I was at a coffee shop. And somebody approached me that looked really familiar. And he came up and he said, hey, are you Brent? Are you Brent Bullard? And like, not like in a celebrity, that sounded way cooler than it was. That's not, was not nearly that cool. But I'm like, yeah. 
I graduated with you from high school. I was like, what? And here he is in town, this guy that I graduated with in high school, and here he is, and it was the coolest moment. I told so many people the story this week. I, got, I immediately called Sarah. I was like, you're not going to believe this. Can you believe he's here as well? Here I am, 600 miles away from the place I was born, and to have something in common with somebody was just like a, from your past is like, oh, this is great. That's what it is for the Christian. That's what it is in the local church. It's not just that you graduated somewhere with somebody, it's that you were adopted by the same person. He knows all the depths of our sin, and not only are we made right with God, but we're called to be going the same direction of being and making disciples, of crucifying our flesh, of taking up our cross together and denying ourselves and following after Jesus. And that's what he says in the pronouns. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us live for the Spirit, unashamed. But as a body, do you know what we have happen? I struggle with spiritual amnesia. Do you? I forget that I'm a possession of Christ. I forget that I'm called to walk by the Spirit, not by my priorities and my desires. I forget that. In the midst of temptation, in the midst of trials, I forget that. And so do you. And God has given us a gift of a church family to help each other remember. No, 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 no. We're not the people of the flesh. We're the people of the Spirit. We have more in common than our own blood. We share His blood. We're truly family. We are actually the people of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of gentleness, and self-control. So let's help put our minds on the things above. Let's help the word of Christ dwell in each other richly. Let's be filled with the Spirit as we walk by the Spirit in a world marked by the law and licentiousness. Let me pray before we go through our next steps. Lord, you are worth our life. You know every depth in every aspect of brokenness in our lives, and yet you have adopted us by faith in Christ alone. We give you glory, and we thank you for the hope that we have in him. God, we thank you that you give us a church family to run with, to walk with, to stand firm with. Father, we confess our sin to you now. We ask that your spirit would search us, that he would comfort us. We lift up to you those in our church family that are grieving or hurting. God, will your spirit comfort them also through your body and your word. Father, we pray for those that are drifting. We pray, God, that your spirit would stop them, would convict them, and would bring them back into the body. Likewise, would you help us? Would you produce, as we pray every week, Lord, in our congregational prayer, would you help to produce a fruit in us personally and in our congregation for your glory and your goodness and your fame in a world that desperately needs the only true hope, that is the hope of the gospel. It's in Jesus Christ, our hope. All God's people said together, amen. And our next steps... It's a question for you to consider before the Lord. And it's very simply, the Christian life is meant to be lived in local congregations. 
And when we get burned or have bad experiences or difficulties that happen to us, it can make us doubly hesitant to want to connect or plant roots again with somebody for a fear of being burned. So my question for you is twofold. Personally, as you look at your heart, have you had a bad experience with the local church? Have you been burned? Have you been forced to demonstrate forgiveness, right, and patience and all these attributes that we talked about? And it, and it was a hurtful thing for you. So my question is, have you dealt with that bitterness? Have you prayed to the Lord before it? Have you sought accountability in the midst of it? Because if you don't, that will become a stumbling block for your ability to walk by the Spirit, to bear the burdens as we're going to look at next week in our text, one with another. But the second application is, just like a family, as ought to care for other family members. Do you know people in your life that you know are believers, but they have been wounded underlying somewhere else? The local church is not called to shoot the wounded. We're called to run after them and to give them care. That's our calling as believers. Our aim is to know Jesus Christ among all things and to help each other know him more personally and intimately as the disciples of Christ. That's what our next song depicts together. Would you sing it with me? Would you make it your prayer for your life? Would you stand with me as we worship?